Since 1984, the Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen. In state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together. By connecting them to each other through thematic, cast, and crew members, or any other various elements. Each week, we will discuss a film that is connected in some way to the film we watched the previous week. And the only caveat is that that film must be a part of the Criterion Collection. And we will also be highlighting new additions to the collection, big ones this week, hidden gems on the Criterion channel, and more. I am Mackenzie. This is my co-host, Ian. Hello. And this week, we are joined by a very special guest, our dear friend Guti from the Real Latinos podcast that we mention every other episode, probably. Welcome, Guti. Thank you. Thank you for happening, having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be on this episode with you all. I'm excited. We are so glad to have you joining us this week to discuss 1948's The Red Shoes, spine number 44. After our infamous slog through the Tales of Hoffman last week, we knew we needed to call in Guti to talk about maybe one of the greatest achievements on film ever. Listen, I'm here to rebuild the bridge that was torn down <laughs> last, two weeks ago, okay? Uh, I come in peace, uh, but uh, yes, I'm here to rebuild that bridge, and I am so excited to talk about this film. I've never talked about this film to anyone, really, other than wow. through my reviews, so this is this is an exclusive. I've never really expressed my true feelings for this film, and I'm glad that uh, I get to do that with you all. Oh, we're so, so honored. Um it was a real last-minute thing, wasn't it, Mackenzie? <laughs> it was. It very much was. We famously were like, we're not going to do another opera. And hey, The Red Shoes, again, is... I, I think there's no secret that we all love this film, and that's why we're here. And so, um, gosh, yeah. I mean, why not? Any any chance to watch The Red Shoes again, I will take it. So, excited. And if it weren't enough, I watched it twice, once with that commentary. <laughs> I saw. <laughs> Nice. But y'all, before we get into the red shoes, big, big, big news, a slew of amazing additions to the Criterion Collection this week. Uh, among those, actually, is a film that, Guti, I think you have talked about on your other podcast. Um, for our listeners who are not already familiar with The Real Latinos, could you please explain to them what that podcast is? Yeah, so basically our podcast is about... Um, bringing a light to Latin American films and Latin American filmmakers uh, when my other co-hosts Ismael and Ron and, and I came together, we noticed that there's kind of a lack of kind of a, of media outlets talking about these films and, you know, it's not being spread out enough. Um, you know, the biggest example of that would be like the sight and sound top 100 poll that recently just came out um, at least for the critic side there wasn't any Latin American films in there. And just based off of the ones that I have seen, especially on the journey uh, with those other two uh, and guys, um, it's, you know, it's not for a lack of quality. 
Um, it's definitely just the fact that there isn't that outreach out there and it's not talked about enough. So yeah, we just try to keep it pretty light on there. You know, we typically talk about the historical context of the film, how it relates to our Latinidad, uh, um, so like Latin identity. Uh, and I think so far uh, through two seasons, we've covered about 67% of Latin America. And so our goal is by the end of this season to cover all of those Latin American countries. So if you want to fill your letterbox map out, you know, because I know a lot of people want to do that, this is the perfect time to come join us and hear us at uh, The Real Latinos. Yeah, everybody should. Uh, I've mentioned it in either like one format. Uh, I've mentioned it in one form or another, but I've listened to the E2 Mama Tembian episode at least three mm. times. It's a fantastic <laughs> conversation. And there's one right there that's also in the Criterion Collection. Y'all have also talked about Memories of Underdevelopment, a recent pick of yours. And now uh, you'll have retroactively talked about a film that is entering the Criterion Collection, La Bamba. So that's going to be spine number 1,193. Can you tell us a little bit about La Bamba and if and how its addition to the collection is like important? Yeah, so... Um, so basically it has to deal with the story of, of Richie Valens, uh, who I guess, spoiler alert, or not really spoiler alert. You can look it up on Wikipedia. Uh, he, he ends up passing away, unfortunately, when he was way too young. Um, and so it kind of retells his tale of his rise to, you know, the short lived stardom that he had. Um, but it's so iconic and it, and it deserves to be within the Criterion collection, um, because it's one of the key features that was, um, that was one of the key features that burgeoned in the 1980s Chicano film movement. And mm. so it, just based on that alone, it's one of the most significant films within uh, Latin American cinema. And as well as um, another title that I hope makes it into the Criterion Collection at some point, uh, Stand in the Liver. Uh, and the lead in this film, Lou Diamond Phillips, is also one of the leads in that film as well. So hopefully that one can make it in there. Uh, I took a quick glance at the features, and I mean, it's completely packed. Uh, the only thing that I was just like, this is kind of weird, is they didn't mention anything around an essay. So I'm hoping it's just like they haven't locked down who exactly is reading it. Because unless it's the, I think the only part of the collection that I know of that doesn't usually have essays are those like Eclipse series. I could be wrong on that. But I think those are the ones that usually don't have essays. So I think it's just maybe they haven't locked down or you know, they haven't been able to, to figure out who's going to do the essay. Um, but yeah, that'll be, a, that'll be a great addition for sure. Real quick before we move on, I just wanted to know, are there any other additions in the Criterion Collection you wanted to highlight real quick since this is like your first time on our show? Oh, I mean, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess I guess I can kind of talk about uh, The Sweet Smell of Success which you two have covered and was an excellent episode. That is one of my favorite film noirs of all time. So that I, that, and that, I think that collection has a decent amount of, of subs. And I think it has, it's one of the ones that has as much stuff that I can remember that I felt was super, super valuable uh, and educational. So I definitely would recommend that edition. I'm also going to throw out, because it's my letterbox top four, Notorious, which for me, I think is the best Hitchcock film of all time. It's literally him just firing in all cylinders. I know a lot of people are going to be like, oh, well, what about Rear Window? What about Vertigo? Look, I've seen all 52. It's Notorious. 
and it also has my favorite actress of all time, Ingrid Bergman. So, yes. you know, yeah. I'm biased. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think those are the two additions I would uh, I would throw out there off the top of my head. Love it. Uh, we'll have to have you back for the Notorious episode then. Please. Ooh. Yeah. Spicy, spicy, spicy. <laughs> yeah, Sweet Smell of Success, one of my favorite movies of all time. Absolutely my, my personal favorite noir of all time. That was a fun episode. Yeah. Mackenzie yes what else have we got coming to the collection besides la bamba yes yeah, so we have la bamba as you mentioned and the other new additions are orson wells's the trial from 1962 that will be spy number 1191 and uh one i think we were kind of aware of because doesn't it it fits into that neon new release schedule yeah. daydream from last year directed by brett morgan will be spy number 1192 which i'm excited to see because i still need to watch that movie uh, and then we have two new restorations, one of which is a big one, uh, Spy Number 948, The Iconic Princess Bride, 1987, directed by Rob Reiner, which I've seen three Rob Reiner films and I've never disliked one. He's kind of my king a little bit with Spinal Tap and When Harry Met Sally and Princess Bride. Those are my faves. Uh, and then a film that I think I've talked about that I don't like, but for people who do like it, I'm glad you are getting a 4K restoration of 1971's Walkabout, Spy Number 10, directed by Nicholas Roque. Is that his name? Rogue? Yeah. Yeah. There was a time in which I was going through the Criterion Collection in order like a psycho. That I, and I gave it up <laughs> pretty quickly. Um, but I got like 20 in. And then so I, since that's fine number 10, I ended up watching it pretty early in my journey. Mackenzie, are you excited about any of these? Anyone uh, besides The Princess Bride poke out to you? Um, I mean, The Princess Bride's the big one. And then honestly, La, La Bamba, because I don't think I've watched that since I was like 11 or something. So oh, I nice. really would love to watch it as an adult again, because I've like listened to the episode and I and I remember parts of it, but I've never like sat down to watch it as an adult. So the time, the time is here and that artwork is amazing. Mm-hmm. Probably, I, I think we talked about how After Hours kind of had like the best artwork in a long time. La Bamba's right up there with with me, with it for me. That that's some of the best art I think they've had all year. Um, so yeah. yeah, that's probably my nice. other one I'm really pumped about. What about you, Ian? Um, actually, uh, I'm really excited to see the trial, uh, directed by oh. Orson Welles. Um, I'm a big uh, Kafka fan. I one of my favorite authors. Um, I you know the trial is a book that I or it's a novella that I really love. Um, and I remember seeing the 4K restoration teaser for this in theaters when I went to see In the Mood for Love. So uh, this has been on my radar for quite a while. Um, really excited for this one. And just to briefly touch on the art uh, comment that you brought up, the, the art on this entire release uh, slate is pretty phenomenal, aside yeah. from, of course, the restorations, which we're all very familiar with uh walkabout and the princess bride's art if we are criterion collectors but la bamba incredibly unique um incredibly uh you know different and exciting fun art moon age daydream um reminds me of the uh sound of music uh sorry reminds me of the sound of metal cover Mm. uh which i have noted on this very podcast as being one of my favorites and then of course the trial um this has gotten a 4K release in a couple different countries at this point. I think us here in the United States are the last people to get it. This is probably the most inspired artwork that has been commissioned for the film uh, so far. So good on Criterion uh, for <laughs> once in their dirty lives for putting in good artwork. <laughs> no offense to any of the artists. Hey. There's a lot of great work in the collection. 
Um, I'm going to hold that Lost Highway cover over them for the rest of my life. I hate that Lost (laughs) Highway was done so dirty. Well, you've also mentioned that one of your least favorite covers is the one for the film that we're talking about today. That is true. I I mean, I like Moira in that moment, but I wish... I look at the Tales of Hoffman poster cover, and I I wish Mm. it was something more, like, artistic. I like drawn covers, I think, uh, uh, as opposed to, like, screenshots from the film. Um, I still think it's fabulous. I still own it. But, yeah, it's definitely not one of my faves. Yeah. We're, we're all doing the, the position for people who are listening to the podcast. Uh-huh. Well, Ian, since you called me out, I'm going to call you out. And it's time <laughs> to enter the world of Powell and Pressburger. Give me that synopsis. Let's do it. Let's get into the red shoes. Let's do it. Why do you want to dance? Why do you want to live? I don't know exactly why, but uh, I must. That's my answer, too. Red Shoes, the singular fantasia from Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger is cinema's quintessential backstage drama, as well as one of the most glorious technicolor feasts ever concocted for the screen. Moira Shearer is a rising star ballerina torn between an idealistic composer and a ruthless impresario intent on perfection. Featuring outstanding performances, blazingly beautiful cinematography by Jack Cardiff, Oscar-winning sets and music, and an unforgettable hallucinatory central dance sequence this beloved classic dazzling restored stands as an enthralling tribute to the life of the artist the red shoes So uh, it's it's no uh, mistake or accident, Gucci, that we asked you to specifically come on here and be the very first guest on our show. We know you love the Red Shoes, um, and we know you love classic cinema. We know you love the Archers. So please give us a give us an oral history, orient us to like where you found them, where you found this film, and how your love for it you know developed. Yeah, so it was actually, uh, if I can remember, I think it's the third Criterion I ever bought in the collection. Uh, The first one I actually bought was the, well, I guess it's a tie between the one and two because I bought them at the same time. But I had bought the Buena Vista Social Club, which is a documentary Mm -hmm. by Wim Wenders. And then I had also bought Che, that's by uh, Steven Soderbergh. And that's mostly just because I grew up with that group's music and I've always been interested in Latin American history. so I had bought those two and then somehow I had made my way to Reddit and I feel like every other post had to do with the red shoes at that time. This is like middle of the pandemic. 
Uh, and so I was like, okay, everyone's talking about this film. I'll give it a chance. You know, I got my other two editions. Uh, they were great. I love the supplements because I'm, I'm a nerd. Like, I'll, I'll go through all the supplements. I don't care how short or how long they are. Uh, that's just the way I am. And, uh, and so I bought that film. And I actually watched it because I have the Letterboxd log. Thank you, Letterboxd. Uh, I watched it on New Year's Day 2021. Uh, I don't know. That's just, I think that's just really cool that I watched it on that day. But basically, my life changed completely after that. And I know that sounds overdramatic, but it's true um so yeah i mean from that day i've seen it about seven or eight times now uh and i also got the chance uh this past april to go to the tcm classics film festival and they screened it uh at the festival and they had uh, ernest dickerson and eddie muller um ernest dickerson was the cinematographer on do the right thing and he's like spike lee's preeminent cinematographer see i'm making connections here already uh so uh yeah so it, i mean it was a fantastic experience it was absolutely surreal especially when you're amongst so many classic film fans especially of that film um and probably the greatest thing for me which is like one of my pet peeves of going to the theater is that uh i mean you you couldn't hear anyone talking like everyone was just completely enraptured by the picture uh, you could literally hear a pin needle drop. So it was fantastic. I, I, like I was texting my friends and stuff. I was like, I'm literally floating on air this entire weekend from here on out. Cause it was just an amazing experience. I'm trying to go next year. I'm trying to go. I really am. Please, I really want to make this. Please yeah. come. I really so I wanted to go to LA. I went for like a day a couple of years ago. So I really want to go back and, and do the film festival. Cause it just sounds like a dream. Yeah, it's my it's my Absolutely. dream to go to LA just for all the the silly touristy stuff, all <laughs> the very average mm. normal stuff. But that's I want to see oh. the Academy Museum and I see a film the Academy at the Chinese Museum Theater. So bad. It's it's awesome. Yeah. It's really awesome. And the Chinese Theater, um, funny enough, Casablanca was playing at the same time as the Red Shoes, so I had to make that decision. <gasps> which that sucked. <laughs> and my mom thinks I'm an idiot, but. I don't agree with her. How do you uh, choose? And I ended up, uh, yeah, I know. How do how do I choose? And I think they did that on purpose so people don't go to like one screening and completely it's over capacity, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I did get to go inside the Chinese theater, and it's just it's unlike anything I've ever seen. It's insane inside. Um, it's literally an art. I mean, they remodeled it a little bit um, to add some more seats and stuff, but it's just like an architectural feat i guess um it's just like unlike any theater i've ever been to so you definitely have to go oh yeah all i want to do is get to the academy museum before the almodovar exhibit leaves so that i can see all the posters and all the amazing stuff yeah it's it's funny that you had to choose between casablanca and the red shoes guti because like i think i said this on our tales of hoffman episode like to me like this uh for i'm sorry this might also be sacrilege but there's like triumphs casablanca this is like triumph citizen kane for me this is like uh to me like one of the most singular achievements in film like i i I wouldn't i wouldn't like lie and say that it's my favorite film because it's not like it's you know there are certain things that like separate between like favorite and best even i think some people disagree with that but uh red shoes is one of my favorite films but i think it it might be the best film i mean i'm 
I'm, I mean, I'm right I there with you. I can't disagree. I mean, to, to like it, literally, I was thinking about this recently. Of, like, if someone asked me to name like what I think the greatest film ever made objectively is, I would have it would be like a tie between Casablanca and The Red Shoes for me. Um, and maybe my personal preference might be Casablanca, just because it's like I'm a big bogey girl, and I those characters <laughs> I have a very emotional attachment to those characters more than maybe the Red Shoes characters. But like in terms of just like a brilliant piece of art, yeah, The Red Shoes takes the cake forever. We know. peaked Bogey in 1942. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Bogey doesn't hand a cantle to Anton Walbrook. <laughs> Mama. Well, spicy, spicy, spicy. Before we get too into the movie, Ian. <laughs> yes. Before you keep shit talking my man's, my man's Bogey. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Um, no I mean, I agree. He's fabulous. But uh, what is your history with the red shoes uh, as well? What, uh, yeah. Him loving. Um. You know, I think, you know, I'm I'm a little surprised, Guti, that you, I didn't realize you'd come to it about the same time that I did. I came to it in 2021. I, ha- I've, I've mentioned this on uh, other podcasts as well as this one, but like I really got back into movies after having been gone for them for nearly a decade, having been really into films as a kid in 2019. Uh, the very end, right before the pandemic, and the pandemic provided an opportunity to revisit some nostalgic favorites. But as the pandemic hampered on, I subscribed to the Criterion channel and started cre- collecting Criterion discs and started making frequent visits to the very same subreddit where you saw uh, lots of posts for the Red Shoes. And I just remember sitting on our bed, my fiancés and I, during the middle of a, you know, muggy summer day just flipping through the criterion uh channel and recognizing the red shoes is like that's one that people talk about a lot um so i just turned it on in the middle of the day not knowing at all what i was getting myself into and just being very captivated by it and enraptured and my fiance sitting right next to me doing god knows what does not like movies uh not a movie person Uh, it's just does not compel them uh was very 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 captivated by the film i think you you cannot not be captivated by the red shoes it just commands such attention and that can be a tired observation about many of the great films but like some of the ways in which they were able to do things is just so mesmerizing and to this day unbelievable even if you can rationalize or intellectualize it it's magic it's a magical film and so you know i love this movie i say it again i think it's probably the best movie ever made um and i think i've watched it like four times since 2021 not nearly as much as you guti but still pretty impressive for a film i only saw two years ago for the first time um mackenzie your turn uh when did you come to the red shoes what's your history with this film yeah, I also watched, I pulled up my letterbox diary. I also watched it midway through 2021. I wish I could remember what made me turn it on. Um, I, you know, I also similarly was getting into film a lot more in 2020. Uh, and that's sort of where my cinephilia was birthed. And I was watching a lot more film and just trying to explore the canon more. Um, and my criterion addiction began because my partner as I said in our first episode, bought me Desert Hearts and Moonstruck on Criterion. And I was like, what are these? What are these fun additions with fun art? What is all this? And I, I do think I probably was also in like Facebook groups and Reddits that were like, you got to watch The Red Shoes. 
gotta watch persona and the red shoes like the two movies that kept getting recommended to me (laughs) and i was like all right uh and yeah i mean there's a writer i've mentioned multiple times drew gregory this is her favorite film of all time so i think i'd always heard about it because she talked about it a lot and so i think i just put it on uh and it just sort of immediately blew my mind and i was so amazed that something so phenomenal could even exist i i just couldn't even believe that like i felt like nothing i'd ever seen in my life before could hold a candle to the artistry on display in the film and then i revisited again a few months later when 70 millimeter did an episode on it and i wrote a very lengthy review and just got really into my feelings about it and i just think it's such a compelling amazing piece of art that is so untouchable and uh yeah i just i it's it's just like one of those movies that you watch and you're like oh i'm watching just like one of the greatest things ever put on film it just it just hits you so immediately um yeah, I mean, that's how I felt when I watched Casablanca and I, I took my headphones off and I was weeping and I was like, what, what did I just watch? Like it, it, both of those films, that and like Double Indemnity, that, that like, tr- that's my triad of like 40s films that like showed me that I can love films from this era. Like those are the films that like blew my mind to the point where I was like, I need to invest in like watching films from the 40s and 50s and 30s. And obviously that's been a journey I've loved and something we've connected on, Guthi. Um, so yeah, like I, I definitely cite this as like the trio of like the 40s films that um, made me love the era, really, because I just think 40s cinema is amazing. Nice. I love how all our stories are kind of the same. Like we all came <laughs> yeah. and like rekindled our passion for for movies around the same time and i am sure it's the same for a lot of people out there too the mm-hmm. pandemic were uh it was wild times <laughs> yeah i think what was really unique about my coming to the red shoes was i have this problem where i'll recognize that there's a totemic film that i need to watch over the past week um uh i think i i really did this with uh, a film by ingmar bergman i've been really wanting to watch called cries and whispers and it's taking me four or five months to watch that film whereas with the red shoes i just was like oh people talk about this movie i just turned it on and i was like holy shit i'm watching one of the greatest things in the <laughs> history of humanity um i guess to that point guti what 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 is it? It can be many things. I think was there one thing about the red shoes where it was like, I'm watching one of the greatest things ever put on celluloid. Uh, it was, <laughs> I mean, I guess I won't bury the lead here, but it was definitely the ballet sequence. Yeah. Um, has to be. Yeah. I, I mean, a, I'd never seen a film have a ballet sequence like that before where it just kind of, you know, it just it smoothly goes from, the beginning of the story, right, of Vicky joining, you know, the ballet, Lermontov, and then all of a sudden going into this ballet sequence, and then just seamlessly transitioning to the post-ballet, right? Uh, yeah, I just n- never seen something so flawlessly kind of put together, um, and I think that's mostly what, what got me, and then just the colors as well. I mean, you can't watch a Powell and Pressburger film and be like, this color is just ridiculous. Like, the color is just out of this world. Um, and, but it, it was, you know, there's a lot of color within the film and all their, and you know, all their kind of like after the life and death of Colonel blimp um, films. But for me, it's the way that they kind of use that color. Like it's very much like in the beginning, you kind of see this, um, you kind of see like earthy 
tones and there's not much red and then all of a sudden you get into the ballet and red is predominant you can't get away from it um and so and it even goes a little bit into the kind of the noir territory um which i can speak about later but yeah it just for me it was it was definitely the ballet sequence that's what completely hooked me in um and basically how the ballet sequence forewarns what's going to happen in the film you have no idea the first time you're watching it but it's literally telling you what's going to happen um so it's just it's insane (laughs) i believe they call that um foreshadowing well i noticed for the very first time in this watch (laughs) when um her and julian are on the balcony and the train goes by and they're just silent i was like oh my gosh that's foreshadowing and it made me uh rip my eyebrows off i was like wow or even when they're going up the, or when she's going up the steps to go basically meet with Lermontov and the rest of the team. Uh, and she's like in this princess gown, right? Like aqua gown and then like little tiara. And then you get that shot of the stairs and it's like, it's it's really weird because the stairs, I mean, she's literally going up to her success, right? But at the same time, you kind of see like this vegetation, kind of like just coming creeping through the cracks of the stairs and if anyone's ever read a fairy tale or watched any sort of fairy tale on film you know that that is not a good sign um so i was completely enamored with that the first time i saw i was like oh this is not going to be good (laughs) (laughs) her little tiara and that not to bring the dumb jokes into the chat, but her little tiara and that always reminds me of Kevin on SpongeBob. You know what I'm talking about? Oh <laughs> the, yeah, the yeah. cucumber oh, with the God. little he- crown. Like whenever she wears her little crown, I think of Kevin from SpongeBob every single time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to echo that that I mean that ballet sequence is just mind blowing. I do think I remember the first time I watched it. I just you know, I was just kind of casually watching the film and then I just had to drop every single thing I might have even been looking at to just focus in on this because I was like what is happening how are they doing this and how is it so brilliant and artistic and amazing and you know i've talked about it a lot i come from the theater world and so it just felt like this beautiful culmination of a lot of types of art that i love and i do think the color struck me too because i don't think i had ever seen a movie look like that like not a lot of movies look like a Paolo pressburger movie and that's what makes their films so beautiful and unique and this was the first time i'd ever seen that and i literally was like how is this even possible like how how are they even doing this i think the only other technicolor film i had ever seen was hobo with a shotgun which is a very different technicolor film um but like (laughs) maybe the wizard of oz when i was a kid right and even Mm -hmm. when i was a kid that's a you know enrapturing film as well when when the world becomes color in that film Uh, but there's just such a specific like specific way that like they marry yes the technicolor with the costumes and the set design and the production design and the yeah. it all marries together into just such a singular visual feast that i, I just like was blown away because i just had never seen anything like it before yeah well and i i'm sure guti has just listened to the commentary as well um I'm a, I'm a commentary fiend i love my audio commentaries on criterion releases but that was really interesting about the Technicolor on this Mackenzie is that mm. Jack Cardiff was basically the first cameraman in Britain to be given the the opportunity the uh, the privilege to work Technicolor cameras and work with Technicolor film and so the red shoes I think just goes to really display that mastery of that that like specific medium within the medium of film if that like makes sense mm-hmm. because Technicolor 
it, it can't technicolor can look bad i've watched some technicolor films where i'm like it's not just technicolor it needs to be a trained person behind the camera and somebody with a vision to really render this immaculate and in a way indescribable because that ballet sequence i have a really hard time describing it because there's like specific moments in it which are just transcendent and terrifying um i think the i think my favorite moments in this films are simply the hues of red which guti was mentioning within this sequence alone oh when um oh i, I don't want to get his name wrong he's my one of my favorite aspects of the film um Messine or Messine? Oh, uh, Messine. Uh, yes. Uh, he's my yeah, favorite Grisha. character too. I love him. He's fantastic. <laughs> but his presence and the colors and the shadows in which he inhabits in this sequence are just astounding. And again, I, I, I can't say this enough. It's indescribable. It's really hard to pinpoint exactly what it is, but it's more of a feeling and an aura that these that this entire sequence gives off. And it's also just amazing that they were able to achieve it. I think I listened in the commentary that either Powell or Pressburger wanted it to be 20 minutes. One of them wanted it to be 10 minutes. So they had to compromise at 15, which <laughs> why wasn't it 20 minutes? Oh, give me more. <laughs> yeah. Give, make it longer. Know, right? Yeah. But no, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I know that I had, I had read in um, Mark Conley's book on the film, he had mentioned that uh, Jack Cardiff, the way he got that gig is he essentially did like a presentation and he had been a pretty big, pretty big into art history and like kind of on the side, he did some painting and whatnot. And so did Hein Heckroff, uh, who does basically did the set design and everything for the red shoes um, and had done, uh, who did the costuming as well. And uh, that, that's the fun basically how we got the gig and then if you look at this like i know this is like cliched phrase but it's like it's literally a moving painting um mm -hmm. within a film so it's just it's outstanding what they're able to to kind of come up with and it's and like you were saying with the red hues and whatnot like it's just like i look at it because there's certain moments in the ballet where you're kind of getting like an objective point of view right uh, and mm -hmm. you're 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 almost seeing what the audience is seeing right but then it starts playing with fantastical elements so for example like you she envisions herself like looking in the mirror with the red shoes on or you even get to the point where you know you see the crashing waves on the stage and it's kind of representing kind of what she's thinking inside and i just i love that idea of how seamlessly they're able to go from this is realism this is now fantasy and it's kind of just playing with you and it's going it's almost like you see, um, it, it's yeah, it's just an absolute incredible mix of different elements, and I think that's almost why it's indescribable because it's like nothing you've ever seen. And Ian, so you don't feel bad. Uh, Ernest Dickerson even said like you just have to watch. Like in his introduction, he's like, "It's like I can't describe it. You just have to watch it." Um, so I mean, with that guy's resume, uh, <laughs> I think we're in safe safe hands saying it's indescribable. <laughs> yeah, and. You know, you're you're touching on these uh, these magical realism elements, which if anybody listens to the show on a regular basis, they know that Ian's favorite thing in the world is magical realism. Just these little touches of magic in these films. And, you know, I've been saying it and saying it, but it is just one of those times where 
it's like how did they do that uh my favorite my favorite bit and touch in this sequence is uh the uh the sequence where miss uh with grisha sorry uh is you know casting his shadow over vicky and um he alternates between uh lermontov and craster i think that's brilliant and just like the psychological depth to which that's getting at where she's you know being pulled in all these different directions i just i i love what that's saying um yeah i mean i we could go on and on couldn't we <laughs> we really could oh, I mean, yeah. absolutely I also was thinking, like, I, I'm sure I don't, I'm sure you both have seen maybe the the restoration demo that's like hosted by Martin Scorsese. I think, I think that the Red Shoes is also just like the prime example for why film restoration is so important because this is such a stunningly beautiful film, and like, had not brilliant film restoration people like gotten their hands on this because I because I watched the video, you know, and it's because it's three strip technicolor there's three different strips of film there's black and white strips they have to clean every single frame individually and then remarry the film together and the the transfer on the criterion is beautiful and like a film like this deserves to be this beautiful but like you know there's a world in which it was forgotten in a drawer which sounds insane but and maybe never was touched and so i think that like the red shoes is also just such a uh, great advertisement for like why film restoration is so important because we need to capture these images and these films because they are just they're unlike any other and I, I don't know I just think this is one of those films that's going to just reverberate well after our times not to get too dark but I just I can't imagine this film ever <laughs> not being a film that is revered and spoken about and loved for t- t- until movies don't even exist anymore I don't know until the end of time um gosh it's just it's just so amazing yeah cappers are our our culture and and history you know that's that's why the restoration is so important uh because these films can tell us of a time that we didn't necessarily live in um and we can connect with other individuals or stories that maybe stuff that's happening in our lives um and it kind of makes us feel less lonely you know so it's, it's fantastic in that in that regard and uh eddie miller did he didn't give us the exact number but he did say that this restoration was super expensive um <laughs> Can so imagine. thanks to everyone who uh put in for that <laughs> <laughs> i mean well like what you said about you know a time and a place and the the stories it's telling maybe that can transition us into talking about the story outside of the ballet as well um because my my lengthy review about this film is that i think that um there's a brilliance to the themes of the film, right? This idea of, I think that there's people who maybe are less connected to it that can be like, this doesn't make any sense. Why is she so, why is she being torn between two? Like, wouldn't it be obvious what choice she should make and X, Y, Z and X, Y, Z. I could see the holes people would try to poke in this story. Um, But I, I felt when I first watched this felt very, very connected to it as someone who went to school for theater and was an artist for many years and has, have struggled with my own feelings of, inadequacy because I didn't feel like I was willing to give it all up to be successful and I do think that is still a huge part of culture with artists with actors with dancers with musicians of what are you willing to give up to do the thing you love and it it does feel like an ultimatum oftentimes and there are men like Lermontov in every institution ready to prey on ambition and it's just I think that like though it was made in the 40s it still feels really relevant to me to me today um 
and I do think that this is a story that is continually replicated because there will always be egotistical men in power and there will always be striving artists filled with ambition and talent and the clash of those two kind of almost opposing forces and how they come together. And so that's something I love about the film is that I do feel like it's, it will always be timely as long as artists exist, as long as uh, this pull to create exists. I need to live. I need to do this or else I'll die. Um, I think as long as artists exist, uh, this story will always be relevant. And so I I also just love the story of this film as well, outside of simply the the beautiful ballet sequence. Yeah. I, 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 I love the film beyond the, uh, analysis of it you know as a story about the artist and what will you give to pursue your art i mean i can't really put too fine of a point on it onto it but i just feel like those themes translate to a much broader audience of like the internal conflict and the push and pull between opposing ideas in one's own head like do i do a or do i do b Uh, can i do both at the same time or is one going to usurp the other um that can be your love your work that can be your family or your friends or your identity i i i find vicky to be such a endlessly relatable character and i just have so much empathy and identify so heavily with her like and i mean uh, uh, absolutely a huge credit to more Rashira's performance because mm-hmm. she is phenomenal. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a shame that she didn't actually get to do more in her life on the screen. I know she was a very passionate and dedicated ballerina, but <laughs> I think she, I think she's phenomenal in here. And the sequence in which she breaks down in front of uh, Craster and Lermontov at the very end always like reduces me to a puddle because I'm just, I, I love her so much. Um, yeah, I mean, something that's so common, um, that's a common theme with it, because I've seen about half of their filmography, if you take out like you know anything that they just produced or war films, and there's a common theme in there where it's about their human desires and as- it's about human desires and aspirations and how kind of history and the landscape of the situations people are put in have an effect on those. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this movie absolutely praise on that i mean if you just think about lermontov he he doesn't care about anything he doesn't care about any human desires all he cares about is his art uh there's a scene right before the ballet where he goes up to morishir and um and you know he's like oh don't worry like you've practiced this a hundred times you know you've been you know just pretend like you're doing it for us right and there's a brief moment there where he is holding her hands and he almost like, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it or I don't know, know, but he like, there's a brief moment where he holds her hands, looks at her and he, he just walks away. And for me, I've always kind of read that as he's basically saying that I'm going to suppress my human desires. I'm going to suppress even saying like, Hey, good luck or anything of that nature. And I'm just going to walk away because at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is for you to go out there and perform because that's the only thing that's his creed right um and so yeah it's just this film is just in, incredible and it just kind of tells you about the the power of art 
but at the same time, um, well, it tells you about the power of art, how beautiful it can be, but also how dangerous it can also mm-hmm. be. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, it's just incredible. Um, it's, inc- it's just incredible. And I think that's why it, you know, touches so many people. Um, and I think Vicky at the end of the day, the reason that she's the one who succumbs and, you know, we can argue or people argue whether she actually committed suicide or she did mm-hmm. not, uh, I'm more of the fairy tale fantasy type of guy, so you can probably tell where I land on that conversation. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it just the reason that she has to do that, as opposed to Arena, who's the other ball- prima ballerina, right, that she takes over for, is because eventually, at a certain point, Vicky's passion for dancing becomes her obsession. And that's why she has to go back as opposed to Irina where it's like, she's very happy go lucky. And the reason that she goes back is because she's just bored at home. Right. (laughs) She doesn't have the same passion as Vicky. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm making it a little too simplified, but that's kind of the way that I kind of read that, that situation. Um, So yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, I think the red shoes is somewhat of a simple story. I think uh, Mm -hmm. on its face, at least, um, I think there are criticisms levied at it that it's just mere melodrama at the end of the day, but I don't think that's the case. We couldn't be sitting here already talking for over 40 minutes about it <laughs> if it were. Um, and also, melodrama is not bad. Melodrama rips. That's what okay, I say. Okay, I'll people. fight everyone <laughs> about melodrama. I <laughs> yeah, love melodrama. Same, yeah. Same. But yeah, I mean, I, I love how all three of our uh, kind of just initial takes on uh, what's important about like the themes of the Red Shoes are like connected even if they are different uh we approach it differently or have different immediate reactions um yeah i just i find the simplicity in the red shoes to be what makes it so evergreen and just you know i you know never tire of coming back to it i think for that i think that's one of the reasons at least um yeah i mean i also just i'm somebody who thinks that we should all uh just uh, enjoy art and fine foods uh that's what we should do with our lives and like the red shoes is about art and like the importance that it has to humanity so like i think i love it for that reason um guti i want to know though you hinted at it what what is your what are your noir takes what is your noir read here i'd love to get oh that. what's my noir read okay uh, so I love film noir. That is probably one of uh, any single. T- I, I so I'm in the camp where it, and this is argued by plenty of historians. But where I currently stand is that it's more of a style than a genre, hmm. and so and and the definition's fluid. You know, you know, we could we can record another three hour podcast arguing uh, either way. But for me, the way that the way that it's shot, like it specifically, like the ballet sequence, like you have the off angle um, and defocus camera shots, also in film noir. Um, you have German expressionism in there, which basically film noir came from. Um, you have these like heightened expressionistic scenes throughout that are almost like nightmarish, right? um and that that to me that's that's film noir it grabs the essence of what film noir is and if that doesn't convince you um there's a uh there's a writer that i i really love and she also does a bunch of supplements and essays for the criterion collection specific to film noir i think she's currently the the chief editor of 
the Film Noir Foundation's Noir City magazine. Mm. Um, Imogen Sarah Smith, absolute lover. Um, She wrote about noir and ballet, and obviously the Red Shoes came up. And at the end of the ballet, she this is basically what she said in her essay. The ballet ends with Messine's shoemaker offering the red shoots to the next taker. The vision of art as a glamorous descent into madness and self-destruction will always have takers. If that isn't film noir, I don't know what is. So I think that's another reason why I absolutely love this film, because I love exploring kind of the darkness of humanity. Right. So, yeah, that's my take. I also think I know I love that the more melodramatic acting style also fits into the feeling of noir. Like when I think of you were talking about Lermontov, I think he is the like most delectable screen villain ever. I love him so much. And yes. I think of the sequence of him slamming his fist. It's that dramatic, like oh, punching the, but like that imagery of him in the cracked mirror is very, it's like thrillery, noir, you know, thriller kind of was birthed out of, you know, noir to me. And so I totally vibe with that because I do think that like this film has a has a darker face I think than people give it credit for and gosh yeah like Lermontov like his that actor he commands the screen so like he is mesmerizing to me on screen like every moment he's on screen he builds that tension with every single person he's in a room with he immediately has the power in the room he immediately can go in for the kill whenever he wants like he just has such a calm he's like a shark i don't know he just has such a calm like he's sniffing out the blood and he knows exactly where to go and he's just so he's just such, it's just such a brilliant performance and such a brilliant and for me he feels kind of noiry the the villainy of him um it's just uh, yeah he's i him but i grisha's my favorite character but like i think that um anton walbrook's performance might be my favorite performance in the film um so it has a little bit of a tangent but it reminds like he fits into that whole vibe with me for me no he's he's phenomenal uh he's also inadvertently like memeable with how kind of much of a sassy bitch he is (laughs) i know we we all love the gif of him kind of looking up with his tea uh he's just such a kind of a sassy bitch and so he's kind of memeable also yeah i find him to be just such a a interesting malevolent force i don't actually see him as like a villain but i Mm. love your noir read on this guzzi i wholeheartedly agree on like the noir is more of a thematic uh approach take love that wholly agree and i see that here at the red shoes and specifically i think mackenzie you brought this up the the um the quick cut with him slamming the <laughs> yes fist against the it's one of my favorite shots in the film and just that whole lead up to that that sequence with him alone in the apartment it's just like so interesting and fascinating the way that they are playing with like kind of the loneliness of that character and all the also the loneliness of that space um i think i think it's also just so much more of a uh experimental film than we think of it because of the like time it comes from and the films of similar pedigree that like come out of the 40s um but like Gucci, I think you were hinting at this. They were just like trying so many new and different things. Like uh, Jack Cardiff was just, you know, balling when it came to like all the different <laughs> things he was trying with like not using certain lights or using certain lights, especially in the ballet sequence. Um, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this tangent, but uh, let's get let's get back to let's get back to the basics. What do we think of uh, the uh, 
uh, men here. Let's not just talk about Lermontov. What do we think about Craster? Because my take on Craster has always been that he's a Nazi-ass freak. What? Why do you think he's a Nazi? Not like really. Just look at him in that final scene. That's an Aryan. That last last sequence, he's an Aryan-looking motherfucker. I think that... Okay. I I like Julian. (laughs) I, I think that Julian is an interesting parallel to Victoria, only because like he's also taken advantage of right as certain in certain mm-hmm. sense like Lermontov also preys on him it doesn't feel like it's exclusively like preying on women necessarily like he he equally sees that flame inside of Craster and stokes it because he he sees it in the same way he sees it in Victoria and it's funny to me that Lermontov actively sort of creates the environment for that romance to blossom and then is like wait what you two what you two are together now like he's just like i mean it's just very funny to me that he's created the circumstances for his own uh of anger i guess but I, the only thing about craster is i do feel that actor's like a smidge old for the role for me because he's supposed to be like a student and he has like that man has lines on his face uh <laughs> am i supposed to think that's like a 22 year old um that's yeah. the only thing about Craster that gets me laughing. But by the end, I've just like, it's melted away. Like that's what a good movie does is like any nitpick I could t- have on it pretty much fades away by the end. And he's kissing her leg. One of my favorite shots in the whole film. Uh, and I, and I, I do love their romance and I do, I, I do think that it's, um, it's heartbreaking. Cause like you want to shake her and be like, there's an easy choice here. Just go with the, the person who respects you. It doesn't hurt you, but it's not that easy to her. And I think it makes their kind of love triangle, if you want to call it that, um, heartbreaking. So I like I, I like Craster, but also as I said, Grisha, he's my favorite character. I love him so much. I love his dancing. I love his little moments he has with Victoria as he becomes like closer to her. These little silent moments of kindness. Him crying, holding the shoes as he hears about her death is probably the most poignant moment in the film for me. Um, yeah, I like the men. I like the men in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I like Grisha uh, when he's left the company, but uh, the costume designer and production designer is like, he doesn't really want you to leave Grisha. And Grisha's like, well, in that case, I will think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I like her uh, partner. He doesn't uh, really have a lot of lines, but he's he's a great dancer. So go him. Yeah. Ivan. Gucci, what do you think of the what do you think of the men? <laughs> <laughs> uh wow uh <laughs> no i mean they're they're all great uh i guess going on craster which kind of goes back to lermontov but it's a thing but essentially <laughs> uh going back to the end of the film right uh where he kind of comes in or whatever he skips the his recital to go basically save vicky from making this decision of dancing in, in the ballet What's interesting is the fact that he's like in a, and which kind of goes to your Nazi comment, is he's in a black trench coat, right? Oh, okay. And okay. he's in a black trench coat. And Lermontov, Lermontov throughout the film, he's literally always pretty much, except maybe when, you know, he gives um, Vicky the, the announcement that she's going to be the new prime ballerina, he's always in a black suit, sunglasses. Going back to noir, he's basically always in shadows. And to me, I mean, they're both basically vampires, if you think about it. Mm. And they're essentially kind of sucking on the emotions, the passion that Vicky has for dancing. And th- though Craster, it's much later in the film, 
um for Lermontov it's throughout and that's how he basically feeds himself and that's how he and I know this sounds grotesque but no, I mean I agree. it's a thing uh and, and basically f- feeds off of her and ultimately leads to her demise um and to me it kind of seems like going back to like the color red too it feeds kind of um Vicky ends up becoming kind of the ultimate prize for him because of the fact she's got the red hair the red ballet shoes she has the path the same passion that he has for dance that he she he believe he believes that she has she has and to him that's like that's the ultimate prize so I think that that's kind of the way that I've kind of seen it and and again going back to German expressionism horror I mean that would make kind of perfect sense that they would both be basically vampires in the situation yeah i uh am starting to realize that maybe i am the sole person in the room that has some kind of sympathy for lermontov and <laughs> i really don't like julian craster like i find him to be uh the least sympathetic or uh character in the film uh but hey we all have different takes well, it's interesting mackenzie's like go ahead no I, I think there's i think that lermontov is so compelling because i do think he's sympathetic i think that you see the sadness within him and that he's too far he's too deep to ever not be the way he is i think and i do think there's a pain there and a loneliness there as you said the way that they they take their time to establish that scene of him alone to show how empty his life is and like the moments when he's with victoria yes i think he's taking advantage of her and he's being manipulative but you see him light up like in his eyes like being with her and making her into a great artist is the meaning of his life and you see that like joy in him that like i don't know i I do find him to be a really sympathetic and interesting character even if he is you know more of an antagonist i think that's why he's so compelling so i totally get the thing. i I think julian's more of a non-issue for me i guess and i he does seem i i agree with guti that he also is siphoning off of her like he's also not a perfect partner the the best option would be be with neither of them probably um but yeah, yeah I, I think i have a sympathy for him too just because i see him in a similar position as victoria yeah i i, I mean i agree too on the lermontoff like i think that's what i mean you, you all have kind of talked about what makes him so compelling and that's what it is and it's almost like you want to in a way appease him i don't know it's weird just because how cool and calm and collected like you all were saying uh he is throughout the film those are some of the most dangerous people these people who Mm -hmm. uh are so charismatic and pull you in and i love what i've never thought about him as a vampire like figure um vampiric in nature dracula like the origin of the vampire is thought of as a very sexual charismatic seductive person who like draws people in and then uh flips the switch and brings about their demise and like i can see that interpretation with lermontov i don't know i think i might just have a different read though where like he's not good he's not a nice person but i almost in a way see what he would have uh vicky do being better for her i don't like i said no mackenzie you're right (laughs) be with none of them they're both bad um toxic boyfriends but um (laughs) no i just there's a sequence uh the very end right before uh craster storms out of the room where it's very emotionally manipulative his approach to 
wanting her to not dance the red shoes. Uh, whereas Lermontov to me almost seems like kind of like, I want you to do what you want to do. Like, I'm not going to stop you from dancing at any other companies, but like, please come and dance the red shoes. Nobody can do it like you. Um, I I am I am completely open to people. But that's also not a manipulation tactic as well. Yeah, no, that's, no, that's exactly I agree. what I feel like. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. But like it's You can seen, go wherever you want. Know. Even though we're the best, you can go wherever you yeah. want. Yeah, no, 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 I know. Yeah. It's like there's no there's no way in which it comes out in a like I, again, I don't think he's a good guy. Um Ian wants to kiss yeah, Lermontov. No, I, I, You're being blinded by yeah. those, those <laughs> well, clips. I, I, you know, this is a whole other podcast, so we don't have to get into it here, but I do think that maybe our listeners could take this and watch the film again. Um, I think there's something to be said about Wahlberg being a gay man in real life. Oh, um, yeah. And reading that um, yeah. and reading something into the film because from all accounts, from Shearer, from Jack Cardiff, Wahlberg put a lot of himself into this character. Like, for better or for worse, Lermontov was essentially uh, Walbrook in the same way that like Genie is Robin Williams. Like, you know, it 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 is very much a uh, you know it meets the themes of the film. Uh, you know, life imitating art, art imitating life. Like, um, I don't know. I think I think a lot of my sympathy is uh, is baked into that as well. Like, uh, I don't know, but. Anyway, <laughs> that's a tangent for again, like I said, for another podcast. Right, and I would also say too, uh, it could be a little bit of Powell because I I have heard stories where he he could go on a little bit of a tirade. I mean, there's a lot of directors who go on tirades, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if if it also is kind of a symbolism of you know it's a reincarnation of him into that character as well. Because at the end of the day, I think like he had once told Scorsese that the the what the film is basically about is art is worth dying for right <laughs> and um which i think scorsese is like yeah i don't i don't think that's right but <laughs> like, <laughs> but you know it, it is dies. what it is like that's know? that's like <laughs> yeah, no. are we supposed to think that was a good thing like i don't understand Mar- marty marty was probably sitting in that room and hearing that and he's like well this is my idol so i'm just gonna you know slightly nod and be like okay okay sounds <laughs> good smile and wave <laughs> yeah exactly smile and wave i i'm curious only i know that we probably have to start getting into our final thoughts soon but i one time when i was surfing reddit saw a post where someone posited the idea of because we don't see the moment the final breath leaves her body if there is a version of this or a way to take this where she is injured and will never dance again but maybe not dead and i'm curious if you have ever thought about that film that the ending in that way i guess not that she's dead but that this the piece of her art has just been taken away from her and maybe there's a different type of life for her i I like to sometimes live in my own delusion and pretend like she lives i I think it makes more sense for her to die but yeah i'm curious if you've ever thought about taking the ending of the film that way that's incredibly interesting i have not um and mostly it's just because of the ballet sequence Mm -hmm in between the film where she does die and also because i've kind of i haven't fully read it but i've at least looked at like the synopsis of the original fairy tale that it's based on it does not end well <laughs> for her so <laughs> spoiler alert <laughs> so i haven't looked at it that way but i i think it's incredibly interesting just because of the fact there is so much fantasy kind of built in here and magical realism as as ian was saying so 
Yeah, I mean, I I, I dig it. I dig it. I want to live in my delusion. I must meditate on I it. I want my queen to live. <laughs> I feel so bad for her. We love we love Vicky. Um, but yeah, I mean, Mackenzie's right. I think it is time that we uh, give our final thoughts and star ratings. Um, Guti, uh, we'll save you for last. Uh, so. Mackenzie, why don't you start us off with your final thoughts and star rating for The Red Shoes? I mean, I'll be short. It's a perfect film. It is one of the greatest films ever made, if not the greatest film ever made. Um, How lucky are we that we live in a world in which we get to watch The Red Shoes as many times as we want uh, in this life? And um, yeah, I will always love this film. It will always be an important film to me. It is a beautiful fairy tale fantasia of art and love and grief and death and it's it's perfect and it it's five stars if i could give it more than five stars i would do so um yeah that's me it's perfect it's the red shoes ian i think i have a feeling where we're all landing but let's do it (laughs) oh you don't you don't say uh yeah perfect film indeed uh we are so lucky um if we could only be luckier and have been alive maybe at a time uh, where it was the newest thing on the marquee and we were all seeing it in the movie house for the first time together. <laughs> I will not have a complete life until I see this on the big yes. screen. That is a huge bucket list item. Five stars for sure. And now to the person who has seen it on the big screen, Gucci, what are your final thoughts and star rating on the red shoes? Surprise us. This is, this is a toughie. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> One uh, I'll star. Keep it quick, but, uh, yeah uh uh, but yeah i mean the influence that this film has had on on filmmakers and stuff speaks for itself something that people uh, often don't talk about is like basically without this film like the ballet sequence in american paris or the ballet sequence in the singing in the rain does not happen because gene kelly was super influenced by this film and it just goes to tell how much of a game changer this really was uh whenever i watch this film it's like we were already said it's indescribable um it's i think the closest word i can find is intoxicating that's how i feel afterwards um and none of them have really been able to pull the emotion that i typically feel when i watch this film like there's no other film that has ever pulled those exact emotions uh you know i don't have i know this is like over dramatic but I don't have the Criterion Collection, the huge one that's off to my far right. Uh, I have not. I would not have been a host on the Real Latinos without this film. I wouldn't have met you two lovely people, um, and it completely reinvigorated my passion for film and especially classic film. Um, I always attribute this one and Denis Villeneuve's Arrival as the mm. two films that kind of rekindled that passion for film. Um, and yeah. To no one's surprise, it's a five-star film for me. Love it. Amazing. Yeah. What a pair, Arrival in the Red Shoes. <laughs> you know, at parties, everybody's supposed to be very happy. No. But perhaps you dislike them as much as I do. Still, as far as go, I think it might have been worse. Do you? Very nearly was a great deal worse. Who were, it appears, to be treated to a little dancing exhibition. But now I understand where to be spared that horror. Mr. Lermontov, I am that horror. Mm. 
it's a bit late for apologies, isn't it? Yes, a little late, I think. Well, the same, I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. But you're not sorry I didn't dance, are you? Oh. May I ask why? And because, my dear Miss... Uh, Miss... Victoria Page. My dear Miss Page, if I accept an invitation to a party, I do not expect to find myself at an audition. And now's the time of the show where we connect to last week's film, Mackenzie. What are we connecting to? Uh, we are connecting to The Tales of Hoffman. Mm, uh, obviously your nice the, favorite the main, film. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the main connection, obviously, is that they are both the same directors. Uh, Powell and Pressburger, two brilliant uh, artists, and they directed both of these films. Um, but I do think there's something to be said, obviously, about the presentation, right, of, of opera and ballet and the way that live theatrical art is being presented in both films as well as stories about love and loss i feel like those are the two kind of major connective tissues between these two films which i think most pal and pressburger films i've seen are about love and loss and humanity and all of those things kind of bundled into one so uh, i think that's a connective tissue across all of their works but definitely these two that we we've covered on the show yeah i uh I bought The Tales of Hoffman uh, on a Criterion sale, but what really put it on my radar was you, Guti, uh, your stellar review of this film. And I am not casting shade on you for like uh, talking this film <sighs> up when we didn't love it so much. But no, like truthfully, we really like one of the reasons we had you on the show is because you love the red shoes. The other reason we wanted to have you here is because you love The Tales of Hoffman. So, you know, briefly before you like, tell us what you kind of can see connecting the two films. Like, why do you love the tales of Hoffman? What is that film to you? I don't know. For me, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know. The question I ask people always is like, have you ever been bamboozled in love? Have you ever idealized someone? And to me, that's kind of what the tales of Hoffman is because essentially like, you know, he he has this woman that he's in love with Stella and the three different, kind of woman that he kind of gives the poem uh, to the rest of the people at the bar that he's drinking at is essentially three different aspects of his love for her. Um, And so I know like one of them is essentially like has to do with infatuation, which would be like Olympia, the first one. Um, And so for me, like, you know, we've all been infatuated with someone, right. But when we eventually meet them, we figure out that that's not really them. Right. Um, So I think the, I, I will say, as a critique of the tales of Hoffman, uh, it's dialed up to a hundred for sure. Uh, I won't, <laughs> I won't say it's not. Um, but, uh, and I will also say that the third one, um, the opera singer is kind of the weaker of the two of the three, mm-hmm. uh, tales mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, I definitely was like, I don't know while watching it, uh, even though I could <laughs> see the kind of like the bigger picture, uh, but yeah, what Mackenzie said, uh, a lot of it is the same, um, you know, it has to deal with obsession, love, artistic expression, you know, here in the red shoes, Vicky is kind of obsessed with her dance, uh, you know, with dancing, right. And Hoffman and all oh, eventually leads to her destruction. And then for Hoffman, the poet, um, the three different women that he falls in love with, right. In this tale that he's telling, um, he basically becomes obsessed with them, leads them to dis- despair and ultimately his ultimate downfall. Cause his rival ends up with the woman. Cause he's pissed drunk at a, at a bar, uh, after telling this tale. So that's, that's kind of why it's really connected with me. Uh, besides what you 
two have already spoken about in the episode which go listen to it uh everyone listening if you haven't um is you know just how beautiful that it's that it's constructed and basically at the end of the day it's kind of like the max of what Powell and Pressburger were trying to get at because Powell always talks about like a composed film and essentially it's just like the perfect fusion of visuals music and dance and and so i kind of see that as kind of the epitome of their work obviously i'm not going to say it's better than the red shoes i'm not going to say that but um i do like i do think it's at least like their last gasp because after that it Hmm. kind of it kind of goes down downhill a little bit (laughs) and they're never quite the same again um and i think they would only work on like two or three other i could be wrong on that they only work on like two or three other films together after that one Hmm. so that's why it has a special place in my heart yeah and i I love the connective tissue that you're throwing out there with like the similar tales of like kind of uh love for something and the downfall that that can lead uh to you but at least at least in the tales of hoffman moira shearer makes it out alive i like that (laughs) i like that thank god yeah i mean speaking to what you're speaking about guti i really saw like the just the peak of their powers in this film like the trailer for the tales of hoffman advertises it as the team that brought you the red shoes like you got all the people you got all the production crew it's it's a pretty impressive feat and while it like wasn't i think my favorite i like definitely see the artistry of it um yeah i think they're just both two amazing technicolor fantasias and yeah i mean i think they'd go i think they do go really well together um i would almost recommend though you watch them in the order that Mackenzie and i watched them for this cycle start Mm. with the tales of hoffman uh even though it comes after the red shoes and then have your uh have your big climax with uh the red shoes because <laughs> have your big climax <laughs> from the criterion <laughs> what a line <laughs> You're welcome. Um, well this was wonderful uh but the we're running out of tape and we gotta get going guti thank you so much for coming and talking about the red shoes with us uh, and if you don't mind, we're going to read a few letters, I believe, that we have. And then I get to reveal my fresh pick for next week, which is a big one. We are going into a slew of <laughs> great films. So, um, Ian, we have two letters, correct? Yes, we do. Um, if our listeners out there want to be like our friends Brandon and Jay Sher, who have wrote, written in, they can send us emails or voicemails 90 seconds or under to thecriterionconnection at gmail.com and we will play them on the air. And our first letter today comes from our friend Jay Sher of the Podzilla podcast. And he writes, hello, Ian and Mackenzie. You can just imagine that in Jay Sher's voice if you know Jay Sher. <laughs> hello. Um, <laughs> he writes, uh, don't have a heck of a lot to say, but for the longest time, I've been very, very jealous of you over there in the U.S. for easily being able to get your hands on Criterion Collection releases. Uh He writes on, they've never really been all that available over here in New Zealand with no local retailers selling them and a hefty shipping fee if buying from overseas. However, I'm happy to announce my mind was blown in all caps. After just this past weekend, seeing a few Criterion Blu-rays pop up in a popular store near me, ended up picking up Do the Right Thing after falling in love with it when you covered it on the show, as well as Blowout, which will be my first time after seeing Mackenzie's five-bang review on Letterboxd. Oh, yes, I love Blowout. (laughs) 
Very excited to start my own little collection of Criterions alongside you all now and to slowly try to pick up a few more as they are covered on The Connection. Love you both. Really value discovering new movies every week and hearing your insights, points of view, and banter. Absolutely owning up the podcast game at the moment. Jay Sheer. Thank you, Jay Sheer. Not me looking at our schedule going, where can I shoehorn blowout into right now? I've almost Um, done it, Mackenzie. Uh, And then our second letter comes from our friend, Brandon. He writes, hey, friends, had a great time listening to your picks on the super special bonus episode about the five films you would add to the collection. Couldn't help myself from thinking about my own list and sharing it with you. As you said on the show, this is a conversation my friends and I have had many times, and it was difficult to whittle down. But here it is. Number five, Boogie Nights. Bit of a shame that only one PTA movie is in the collection. This is my favorite of his, and every month when Criterion announces their new releases, it's the one I'm always thinking about as I scroll through the email. You and I both, Brandon, we can keep on dreaming. (laughs) Uh, Number four, Wild at Heart. Might as well cheat and smuggle in the straight story here, too. My two favorite Lynch films are basically the only two of his not in the collection at this point. Come on, Criterion. Let's make it happen. Number three. Yes. Only two Paul Schrader directed films in the collection, but Blue Collar is one I think his debut is more than deserving of consideration. The three lead performances from Harvey Keitel, Yafet Koto, and Richard Pryor are all stunning. I think this recently just got a 4K restoration on Kino or maybe something. Mm. Brandon, I'm sorry. I might be wrong on that. Number two, Rabid. Cronenberg already has a long-standing relationship with Criterion, having six movies in the collection. This is one of my personal favorites of his, and I would love to see it get an updated release. And then finally, number one, Stay Hungry. No Arnold movies in the collection is something that we need to rectify very on brand. (laughs) (laughs) He writes, I would love for this underseen gem from 1976 pre-pumping iron to make it in. Directed by Bob Raffleson coming off of five easy pieces. Side note, streaming on the Criterion channel as of this recording. Arnold stars alongside Jeff Bridges and Sally Field, and he even won a Golden Globe for Best Newcomer in 1977 for his performance. The movie is a lot of fun and is currently streaming on Tubi, and Brendan highly recommends checking it out. And finally, as an honorable mention, there are two titles already in the collection that need a 4K upgrade, according to Brandon. Mm. Kubrick's Barry Lyndon and Tarkovsky's, mm-hmm. a personal favorite of mine, Stalker. Mm. Closes out his email by saying, Mackenzie, I hope your yes. beach time was wonderful. Loving the show so <laughs> far. Your friend, Brandon. Thank you so much, Brandon. Yeah. And I'm sorry that I editorialized numbers on your picks. I realized those were not ranked or anything, but just so everybody knows, those were not in any specific order. Anyway, well, those are all our letters. Once again, if people want to write in their own letters about what they would add to the collection, tell us what they thought of the Red Shoes, the Tales of Hoffman, or anything from our back catalog, they can write in to the Criterion Connection at gmail.com. Mackenzie, that is it from the mailbag. So it is time to tell the fine folks out there the (laughs) amazing movie we are going to be watching next week. All right. I'm going to lead up by reading the synopsis before I tell you the name of the film. The subline, I forget, the little like teaser before the blurb, just because it's hilarious, is 
a picture that goes beyond what men think about because no man ever thought quite this way, which is hilarious to me. Guido Anselmi, a film director, finds himself creatively barren at the peak of his career, urged by his doctors to rest, and Anselmi heads for a luxurious resort, but a sorry group gathers. His producer, staff, actors, wife, mistress, and relatives, each one begging him to get on with the show. In retreat from their dependency, he fantasizes about past women and dreams of his childhood. That's right, we're watching... Rob Marshall's 2009 hit musical Nine. Now, um, we're, we're watching... Um, I had to make the joke. Uh, I, we're watching 1963's iconic Eight and a Half, directed by Federico Fellini. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> for the listeners who can't see because this is an audio format, Gucci's eyes were just darting around going like, what could this be? <laughs> <laughs> I really had no idea. I, I, I actually have not seen Aina. I noticed. I was looking to see if you'd logged it and I saw you hadn't. Yeah, it, because I have the the Fellini box set and I want to do mm. kind of just like a full journey through it. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's that's why it. I haven't seen it. If not, I would have seen it by now. This yeah. will be a rewatch for me. Uh, I like it. It's I've good. only I've only ever seen nine, the Rob Marshall version <laughs> of it. Uh, Spoiler so, alert: uh, our connection the following week is nine. <laughs> Thank God. Well, I I keep holding it over Kev's head that one day we're gonna do nine. Uh, so I'm gonna talk about it on a podcast one day. Uh, but you know, not today. I am. I've only seen one other Fellini, so I'm very very excited to watch this one. I'm learning Italian on Duolingo, so this is going to be my practice for the week. (laughs) Well, that's super exciting, Mackenzie. Once again, so much gratitude to you, Guti, for coming on and joining us to talk about one of the best films ever made. Thank you so much. We can't wait to have you back for Notorious. Anything else you want to add, my friend? Yes, please plug where we can find real Latinos, too. Yeah, I, I mean, it, the pleasure is all mine. Like, like I said before, uh, I'd never really had like a full discussion on the red shoes. So it was great to kind of just like, I'm not exercise the demon, but like, you know, kind of get over that hunch to finally talk about a film that means so much to me. So thank you so much for that opportunity. Um, if you want to find me on social media, you can find me at letterbox.com uh, my username is cg reviews all one word and then for our real latinos if you want to follow us um we're on pretty much any podcast provider uh that you listen on um and you can find us on instagram at twitter at real latinos which is r-e-e-l-l-a-t-i-n-o-s so two l's in there um in the middle but uh yes again thank you so much for having me on Thank you so much. And if anybody wants uh, to listen to Real Latinos as they should, there will be links in the show notes. But Mackenzie, do you have anything else? Nah, just vibing. (laughs) All right. Well then, Mackenzie and Guti, until then. See you next week on the Criterion.
but yeah no he's it'll keep recording you guys so we won't have to do anything hopefully too shit wow. oh, oh okay i think you're back oh there we go i heard shit all right. nice. yeah no you both were you both were <laughs> both were back all right cool hey. we're back i was just thirsting over uh anton Wahlberg real quickly um <laughs> i had a I had a rep on there um so yeah basically i was just saying like uh he's so hot i literally was saying that um he is hot yes 